Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. Joining us now, NBA reporter for CBS Sports, Sam Quinn. Nice enough to take some time with us. Sam, is Vegas calling your name at all throughout these 10 days, or are you still in the Big Apple? I am still in New York. Uh, I feel bad. My parents actually live in Vegas, so normally I love the opportunity to get out there. But this year I'm staying home, and it seems like with Victor Wembanyama debuting this week, you know, it'll be pretty crowded. I might have avoided a nice crowd. Yeah, I mean, look, anytime you're going to have that many people to see what is, as we've joked about, an exhibition at, at its largest point, even though people will overreact or underreact based on those performances. <laughs> I don't blame you, Sam. Yeah, I, I'll put it this way. I can see these guys in three months in games that count. <laughs> I don't feel any great need to rush. It's nice to see people, you know, the entire basketball world is down there, yep. but it's 110 degrees in Vegas right now. I'm good. I, I can take the year off. Yeah, the only solace that I took in it was just watching as much basketball as possible and avoiding the outside world until nighttime. But even then, still very, very hot. <laughs> oh, at night? Well, the thing is, with it being the desert climate, you know, Vegas, it gets 110 degrees during the day. Right. Then it drops 60 degrees at night. <laughs> well, since you're not out there in Las Vegas, and we will circle back around there, even though I'm sure you'll be watching it all from afar, I want to stay local for just a second. Tyrese Halliburton gets that rookie-designated extension and is now locked in for the next six seasons as a part of this Pacers core. As you look at where they want to be next year, where they want to be over the life of this contract, what does this deal mean both long-term for the franchise as well as for Tyrese Halliburton himself? You know, I don't think there was ever any doubt about this contract, obviously. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton, even going back to when he was in Sacramento, had made it clear he was comfortable being in a small market. That was never something that was going to bother him. But that said, getting somebody to sign a deal like this, knowing that you're going to have your franchise superstar for the next six years, is a pretty big deal, especially in a market like Indiana where Paul George didn't stick around. And, you know, it's, it's in certain cities, it's easier to keep players than it is in others. Halliburton is the sort of player that one day you could build a championship team around. I think they have a little bit of a ways to go, but they're headed in the right direction. And while this step might have been you know, obvious, we might have known it was coming. It's still pretty important and symbolic to say, hey, we have a guy who we can build a championship around who's committed to our team, who wants to be here and understands, like, you know, this might not happen right away, but we're moving in the right direction. Sam, I saw the interview yesterday, and Tyrese Halliburton shouted out his mom, very humble, and I just want to say, Lord knows he could not put that kind of talent in me because the money would change me. The money would change me so much. <laughs> I would be like, yes, yes, I'm worth every penny. I'm never going to be the same, all you peasants out there. But no, jokes aside, another guy got a pretty big payday, got announced yesterday, was Bruce Brown here in Indianapolis. What do you think he can bring to this team given the championship DNA that everyone talks about and obviously still being 26 years old? Yeah, I, I found it a little interesting. They announced him as a forward instead of a guard. Now, if yeah. you look at the minute-by-minute breakdown, I think he it, it has been close to a 50 minutes or 50% split where he spent some, some time at forward, some time at guard. He has 
like 6'2 or 6'3. He's a smaller guy. And the Pacers do have a lot of guards. You know, they trade Chris Duarte mainly to get out of that log jam in the backcourt. But, you know, they still have Buddy Heald, still have Halliburton, still have Andrew Nembhard, and still have TJ McConnell. Like, there, there are a lot of guys. And Benedict Matherin, too, who, frankly, is probably going to start this year and had a fantastic rookie year. They do have a lot of smaller guys in that backcourt. But Bruce Brown does things that the rest of them really don't. He can defend way bigger than the size, you know, low center of gravity, very strong, long arms. I don't know how I feel about how small they are, but if you just look at the raw skill set that Bruce Brown brings, the defense, the supplementary ball handling, the connective passing, those are things that championship teams really need. The Nuggets clearly valued. And I'd also say they structured the contract really, really well. They do this two-year, $45 million deal. The second year is a team option, or it's not guaranteed. I can't remember exactly what they decided on. But the point is the Pacers can get out of this in a year. I don't think that they only plan to keep Brown for a year. But if you look at the way his free agency derby was shaping up, basically every contender was looking at him thinking, man, we'd really love to add Bruce Brown. We only have the mid-level exception, so we don't know if he'll take that. The Pacers beat all of those offers with the big one-year balloon payment. But next offseason, they can renegotiate a longer-term deal with him with the championship chain kind of off and maybe not as many contenders trying to steal him away. You can renegotiate for a longer deal at a slightly more palatable year-by-year number. So if you told me in a year he re-signed at something like three years, $45 million, I would say that sounds about right, but you got him in the door, and that's what counts. Mm-hmm. I would have liked somebody a little bit bigger in that slot, but ultimately this is somebody who is one of the best players on a championship team. It's hard to complain about that, right? Like any team would have loved to have him in Indiana. the one that got him. How does a player like Tyrese Halliburton of his caliber, Sam Quinn, CBS sports covers the NBA with us here on the fan midday show. How does a player of Tyrese's caliber, when you look at the way contracts are structured incentivized with all NBA, how does a player of his caliber and his position group get impacted by all NBA going positionless next season? You know, it's a good question. I think this year what we saw was that there was some positions were obviously more stacked at All-NBA than others, right? Like, it was frankly a little bit hard to get to six All-NBA forwards this year, where I think I had Laurie Markin and Julius Randle as the 13 forwards on my ballot, whereas the guards, there were like 11 or 12 guys that had real cases, and you were arguing like, oh, can I put Damian Lillard on here despite being on a team that frankly tanked down the stretch? Can I put Stephen Curry on here despite the missed games? Whereas, you know, you come, you get five or six forwards, it's hard to get there. So from that perspective, going positionless probably makes it a little bit easier for Tyrese Halliburton to make it. That said, the big thing is going to be staying healthy because we have the 65-game minimum. Last year, I can't remember exactly how many games Halliburton played. I think he was right on that bubble. He misses, you know, several weeks in the middle of the year. If he's healthy, I would think he has a reasonable shot at it, but... You know, with all NBA, you never want to be too certain. There's so many variables that can go into it. So I think give, you know, it was smart of the Pacers to give him the incentives. I, I would have done it. I think with a player like that who's that good and that young, you want to keep him happy. You don't want to haggle over every last detail. But he's got a shot. I wouldn't say that he's likely or unlikely. I would say he comes into the season with a decent shot to make an all NBA team. Yeah, Sam, to your point, Tyrese Halliburton played 56 games last season for Indiana so obviously that would not clear the 65 game limit or at least the threshold this year so and also I want them to be positionless because Nikola Jokic being second team all NBA last season looks horrible 
in hindsight. And this is why I'm glad I was there because years down the line, we have these debates on who's the best big. Or someone's going to say, oh, he was the only second team there. And I'm like, you get out of here. You're banned. <laughs> um, and so well, it's a little funny because we had those years in like the mid 2010s where it's like, is our first team all NBA center DeAndre Jordan? Like, you know, having that center spot has kind of been a blessing and a curse where there was this period where we just didn't have anybody to fill the slot. Whereas now it's like, oh, the two best players in the NBA play the position where we only have one slot. What are we going to do? It makes no sense. Sam, I used to cover high school sports and do high school basketball, and I had my all-area teams positionless. So if I can do that three or four years ago in Northwest Indiana, I'm sure the NBA finally, thankfully, has figured it out that you don't need positions in a positionless sport. Um, and speaking of sort of being positionless, Obi Toppin is a guy who can, who can kind of mesh into different um, positions on the court. How do you see him fitting in with the Pacers and potentially what can be unlocked playing alongside Tyrese Halliburton? You know, purely aesthetically, as somebody who enjoys watching a certain brand of basketball, that might have been my favorite addition any team made all <laughs> offseason. I mean, Obi Toppin, the, the, the problem with him in New York was they drafted him to replace Julius Randle, and then Julius Randle becomes an all-star as soon as Obi arrives. So he plays 15 minutes a game for three years. We frankly don't really have a good idea of what kind of NBA player he'll be with real minutes because he's never really gotten real minutes. That said, in 15 career starts, he's averaged over 20 points a game. Like, clearly there is something more to his game that can be unlocked with more playing time that he just was never going to get in New York. That said, if you were going to build a big man in a lab to play with Tyrese Halliburton, it would be Obi Toppin. He is, maybe aside from Giannis, better at running the floor than any big man in the NBA He's a high-flying dunker. He's going to catch so many lobs from Halliburton. You know, he's developed a bit as a three-point shooter. He's, he's not great yet. But if you put him with Miles Turner, where they both got three-point strokes, you can really get creative with how you run pick and roll. You can do a lot of the double-drag stuff that Atlanta runs with Trey Young, where you have big men that can both get to the rim and stay behind the arc, really confuse defenses. I think he's going to be a great fit there. If, in fact, if you're looking for a most improved player bet to make, I haven't seen his odds yet. I would very much be looking at him as kind of a flyer. You know, the only question there is, you know, he obviously plays the same position as Jarris Walker, who they just drafted number eight in the in the lottery. So, you know, it'll it'll depend on how many minutes he gets. But Rick Carlisle does not like playing rookies. You know, last year was an exception given the, the roster that they have. But I would imagine Rick Carlisle is going to favor Obi Toppin in that rotation. And he's going to get a lot of minutes and a lot of chances to score. So I am very excited about that addition. A man after my own heart. We didn't even ask for a prop bet, and he throws one in there for us. I love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Sam Quinn with us of CBS Sports. Do not, please, Sam, do not you know, feed this man. Oh, any, man. any more prop bets, we, please. We, we could go down a dangerous rabbit hole the further <laughs> that we, we take that walk. Sam, locally, the biggest mark on the Pacers that we would like to see improved from a season ago is on the defensive end. They've shown they have the ability to put up high-volume points. The problem is they're also giving them up to the other team. From a national perspective, is that the main area you want to see a leap forward from the Pacers? And if not, from your perspective, where do you need to see growth and a step forward from this team? Yeah, you know, last year the big problem was they had all of these guards, most of whom were very good on offense, maybe not so good on defense. And then they had Miles Turner at center, but absolutely nothing in the forward slots. Now, I do think if you purely look at it from a depth chart perspective, 
Bruce Brown at small forward and Obi Toppin at power forward are significant upgrades in those forward slots, but they're not, you know, the traditional great defenders, right? Bruce Brown is a very good defender, but he's better on guards than he is on forwards just because he's smaller. So I do agree that getting better on defense is the priority. They looked into into OG and Anobi really hard, both the trade deadline leading up to the draft. There was a lot of talk that they wanted to use their pick to trade for a veteran forward. I don't think that chatter is going to die down. I don't know what the Raptors are doing, frankly. I mean, losing Kyle Lowry for almost nothing a few years ago and then going through the exact same process with Fred Van Vliet this year where they turn down offers at the deadline and then lose him for nothing. The Raptors have to commit to a direction at some point. I don't know when it's going to be. And OG Ananobi is a free agent next offseason. I would imagine the Pacers revisit those talks the moment Toronto says, okay, we'll consider it. If it's not Ananobi, I do think they are going to be looking for somebody who fits more of that traditional 6'7", 6'8", perimeter defender mold. I think Jairus Walker is more of a big defender than a wing defender. So I think that's something they're really going to look for because in a perfect world, Bruce Brown is defending guards, and Obi Toppin is not a great defender. So I do think they're one wing away on defense. That said, Miles Turner is one of the best defensive big men in the NBA, and while Tyrese Halliburton hasn't been great on defense so far in his career, he has the tools, he has the size. I would expect him to improve pretty significantly between now and you know whenever the Pacers hit their final form as a contender. So, yeah, defense is a problem. It's not something I'm especially worried about them actually solving in the near future. I think they'll get there. To that point, I know we've talked a lot about the additions they've made, the extension, obviously, with Tyrese Halliburton. But how does Miles Turner fit into all of this and how important is he in today's NBA? Because I do feel like he is one of the more underrated players in the league. And maybe that's because I can always have constant Lakers fans telling me he's worth like a bag of chips and it should just get him over there to L.A. But, you know, how does he make this all work on the back end? Yeah, as somebody who writes a lot about the Lakers, I can tell you they would have loved to have had Miles Turner last year. I think he would have made quite a difference. You know, there are so few big men in all of basketball who can bring elite shot blocking and, you know, not elite three-point shooting, but very good three-point shooting. Having somebody with those two particular skills is so rare and so valuable that the Pacers getting him on the contract that they did last season where they front-loaded the deal with that renegotiate and extend mechanic where they used their cap space during the season to bump up his number. And then now the next two years, he's at a, you know, frankly deflated number relative to what he actually is worth. Mm-hmm. That's a gold mine for the Pacers. I mean, that's somebody that, I mean, God, he'd be an upgrade over 20 starting centers around the league, something like that. It's funny, they, they go after DeAndre Ayton last summer, and now I think if Phoenix called and said, hey, we know you loved DeAndre last year, would you train him for Miles Turner? I think the Pacers would probably hang up the phone, right? I mean, yes. he was so good last year, and he clearly, this, this is not a slight against Samanis Sabonis, who obviously had a fantastic season in Sacramento. Those two both clearly needed to separate because their timeshare at center didn't make sense for either of them. Both of them had wonderful seasons away from each other last year as full-time centers. And I think now what we've seen with Turner over the last year is we knew he could shoot, we knew he could block shots, Now we're starting to see the rest of his game fill in because he doesn't have to worry as much about Sabonis being there. You know, he's had more of a floor game last year. He was better near the rim. I personally, I mean, there are very few centers I'd rather have than Miles Turner. I think the extension they got him on was a steal. 
Sam, as you look at all the changes that have happened this offseason around the Eastern Conference and you look at where the Pacers hope to position themselves, is being a playoff, a, a one to six, obviously one's probably <laughs> too high, but a one to six playoff team, not a play in team, a playoff team next year, too high a bar for this club where they're at right now? I wouldn't be thinking playoffs are bust, but I don't think it's real. I don't think it's unrealistic either. Remember, before Halliburton got hurt, they were right in that mix last year, right? And this year's roster is certainly better than last year's. Even before you factor in what we would assume is going to be meaningful growth from the young players. So Miami, if we assume they get Damian Lillard, is going to be very, very good. The Bucks are going to be very, very good. Cleveland, you would assume Philly, wherever the dust settles, is going to be very good. After that, you know, the middle of the Eastern Conference I don't look at the Knicks as like a guaranteed top six team. I think they'll be right in the mix, but I don't think they reached the stage last year where like, oh, I definitely have to list the Knicks above the Pacers. I kind of feel the same way about the Nets. I I certainly feel like the Pacers have evolved beyond that Bulls, Hawks, Raptors group. I would say it's likelier that they land in the play-in. That said, if you told me they were the number five or number six seed in March, I wouldn't be totally surprised, right? I mean, that's where they were before Halliburton got hurt. So, Sam, let's take a broader picture of the league. How do you see the Damian Lillard situation playing out? Do you think he ultimately ends up in Miami? Yeah, I suspect the way these things tend to go, more often than not, is the team that has the superstar will, you know, they'll kick and they'll scream and they'll fight it and they'll do whatever they can to generate a little bit of leverage. But usually in these situations, the star ends up where the star wants to go. That said, I mean, as an outside observer, it's not great for the league when a player who signed an extension last season, really a year ago, now says, not only do I want to get traded, and look, I think the trade demand in itself made sense. Clearly, Dame and the Blazers want to go in different directions. But to say, I only want to go to one team, you know, having his agent basically warn teams not to trade for him. There was something that came out today that was like, maybe he wouldn't report. I don't know if I believe that, but to really send out this message, I'll only go to one team. Not only that, it totally depresses the trade offer that Miami will ultimately make because they don't feel like they have competition. That's bad for the league, right? And my, my thought process here is if Damian Lillard had wanted to pick his next team, he had a chance to do that. He could have become a free agent. He didn't do that. He chose to sign extensions. And ultimately, I'd rather live in an NBA world where players, like, look, if, if you're going to demand a trade, some, I get it. Sometimes the situations don't make sense for both parties. But at least work mutually together to find a situation that makes sense for all parties involved. I am not crazy about guys basically saying, I'm only going to go to this one team. And that said, like Miami, if they get Damian Lillard, they're going to be really good. I might pick them to win the East. I would say if they're not the favorites, they're certainly up there. So ultimately I expect it to get done just because that's what history says will get done. Now that I look back on the CBA negotiation that took place over the last, you know, the deal was agreed to in March or April. I'm a little surprised that they didn't take more steps to find ways to say, Hey, if you're going to sign these long-term extensions, you can't just ask out in a year. That's not good for the sport. They didn't, and here we are. Yeah, Sam, I agree with everything you said, but I still might be leaning towards Damian Lillard because personally, I like Miami. Miami's nice. 
tax free down there I in Florida. There. You don't have to convince me. So, so, so I get everything he's saying, but no, on a serious note, you make a very good point about that, and I am curious to see how that changes because because me and Jimmy talked about it. Tyrese Halliburton, not saying he would do this, but. He's locked in for six years. He's going to be here for six years. And it's like, eh, in the NBA, you just sign, and then you can just, if you're good enough, you just force your way out. And the only person who really had the leverage to do it the proper way was Bradley, Bradley Beal because of the no-trade clause. But other than that, it's like, I mean, we've seen it with Harden. We've seen it with KD. And we might see it again down the line. But it is very interesting to see how that plays out because I do think if he ends up in Miami, they have a chance to do something special and contend in the East with the Bucks in Boston. And uh, real quick, with Boston, did they get better? Like, do you think that they're a team that is able to get back to the finals given the changes they had? And also, will they ever play smart basketball in Boston? Because last year hurt me so bad from a purist standpoint because they played so dumb, which is why they didn't go to the finals again, in my opinion. Yeah, I think they're probably a guard away. I, I completely understood the decision to move away from Marcus Smart and Grant Williams to a lesser extent. I think when you've lost that many years in a row in such painful ways, even I'm not going to sit here and you know disparage Marcus Smart. I think Marcus Smart is going to have a wonderful influence on Memphis. But I think there's something to the idea that voices get stale over time, and that's part of why Brad Stevens resigned as the coach and became the GM. He felt like the team needed to hear a different voice. I think there's some truth to that in locker rooms as well, where the Celtics were kind of the rare contender where the best players on the team were not the loudest, right? The guys who, you know, the the heart and soul of the team was Marcus Smart, and the guy who, you know, was constantly talking trash and making noise was Grant Williams, and clearly that wasn't working out. So now it's the onus really falls on Tatum and Brown to step up into, I don't want to say step up into leadership roles because obviously they were leaders before, but now the safety blanket's gone with Marcus Smart and it's really going to be on them. I do think Chris Epps, for Zingas, if he can stay healthy, you know, that's one of the ultimate ifs in the NBA, is a great addition purely because so many of their issues on offense last year and really dating back to this entire era has been their offense is great when the three-point shot is falling. When it isn't, they don't really have many fallbacks. Well, a seven foot three guy that can score two feet from the rim or 25 feet from the rim is a pretty good fallback to have. You know, when all things are failing, a Chris Stapps Porzingis mid range jumper is usually going to be a pretty clean look because nobody can block it, right? He's seven foot three. Chris Stapps, he had a very good post up season last year. I don't know if I quite buy it, but he's going to get the best looks of his career playing with Tatum and Brown. I get the logic behind making the move. I do think they're going to need to find another guard at some point. Derek White had an awesome year last year. Malcolm Brogdon's injuries are concerning. The Clippers could have traded for him and didn't because there was something in that medical file that scared them off. Are you going to trust him going into next season? Are you going to feel comfortable with Peyton Pritchard playing a real role? I don't know that I would because whenever the Heat saw him over the last few years, they just torched him on defense every single possession he was on the floor. At some point, I'd like to see them maybe turn that Brogdon contract and a couple of picks into another guard. But otherwise, they're going to be right in the mix, right? They have two of the best, I don't know, 15, 20 players in the NBA. Porzingis makes sense for their flaws. That said, they don't really have a traditional point guard right now, and that's been a major problem for them for the last however many playoffs, right? Until they get somebody that I trust, to fully design and run, or not design, but to really run an offense 
down the stretch of playoff games, I'm going to be a little bit wary. Sam, last thing from me, going back to Damian Lillard for just a second. As you look around the league at potential destinations for him and the packages that can be offered, does Miami have the best package, the the only package at this point? (laughs) And regardless if they do or not, if he does end up Miami, is this a multi-team trade, the only way this thing gets worked out? Yeah, Tyler Hero would presumably go somewhere else. The Blazers have Shaden Sharp, Scoot Henderson, and Anthony Simons. They don't need a fourth big minutes, big shots guard. They would send Tyler Hero somewhere else for some assets. And the Heat, if you really went all the way, like all the way you could, it would be three first-round picks, three swaps. Jaime Jaquez, the kid they just drafted. Nikola Jovic, who they drafted last year. You know, maybe you throw in the expiring contract of Kyle Lowry. Maybe you take back Yusuf Nurkic. That's not, that's not a good offer, to be clear, relative to what I think the rest of the league would give up. It's not a terrible offer. It's something that might be close enough to get this done. If you're asking me what I think the best offer would be, the trade that I think the most makes the most sense, and buckle up because this is going to be a bit of a long one, it's a four-team trade where the Clippers get James Harden, the Jazz get Tyrese Maxey, the Blazers get picks from Utah, the Clippers and the Sixers, and the Sixers get Damian Lillard. So essentially what we're looking at here is the Clippers get James Harden, who they've been looking for, and they give stuff out to get him. The Jazz get Tyrese Maxey. They don't have a long-term point guard. Maxey is far more valuable around the league, I think, than Tyler Hero is. I imagine Utah would give up quite a bit out of their stash of picks to get him. Philly has one first-round pick to deal. Other than that, they're basically tapped out. They traded everything for Harden and a year, going back a little bit further to get Danny Green to get out of the Al Horford contract. But that is the package, I think, that can get the Blazers the most picks, where Philly alone probably doesn't have the assets to get Damian Lillard. But Philly plus the Clippers plus the Jazz, you combine all of that, and I think they can make an offer that is far more interesting than what Miami can do. So I think if you're purely looking for the trade that makes the most sense for all parties involved except for Damian Lillard, who's committed to Miami, I guess, that's the deal that I would be looking at. See, this is why I follow Sam on Twitter, because I get this every day and it blows my mind. So we'll let you go. But thanks so much for coming on, Sam. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And keep up the great work. Ian Begley from SNY. Ian, how you doing? Good, fellas. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. I appreciate you coming on. Obviously, they have a new high flyer in town. Obi Toppin. So to start off, Ian, what was your reaction to the trade itself and potentially what opportunities Ian might have? I'm not, sorry, not you. I'm sorry. Uh, Obi, Obadiah might have in a new scene here in Indianapolis. Well, first of all, I hope Rick Carlisle gets me on a, uh, a 10 day at some point. Um, I'll talk to him. With, with Obi, yeah, like I wasn't surprised that he was traded at this point in his career. I think what surprised me was 
the idea that, you know, he just never had a clear path to a role and to significant minutes with the Knicks. I think when you look at what happened there, like they drafted him eighth overall in 2020, and then they had Julius Randle in front of him. I think the plan at the time, loose plan, was probably to move Julius Randle at some point uh, during Obi's first season or after that season, but then Julius Randle goes on and puts up all-star numbers, all-NBA numbers, and that plan goes awry. And then Toppin was just kind of stuck behind Randle, playing limited minutes, limited role uh, for the following two seasons. So it was clear that he and the Knicks, were not, it wasn't going to work out here in terms of finding him a big role. So they looked on the trade market and they found Indiana as a trading partner. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't surprised at the end there. Just a little bit surprised at how it all unfolded over the last three years. In terms of the return value to second-round picks for him, did, did that surprise you at all, or just based on everything that's gone on with him and, and falling out of rotation availability with Tibbs and where he's at in his career with only one year left under team control and then restricted free agency, did the compensation surprise you at all? It didn't. It didn't. You know, For every aspect that you just mentioned, it did not. I think my sense would be that the Knicks – could have gotten more back for Obi Toppin had they traded him earlier than this point in his career. And so that's kind of where, where I am with the whole process. I, I didn't think it went well. But in terms of trading him when they did, you know, this was about primarily, I think, shedding Obi's salary and creating more financial flexibility for the group because then they went out and they signed Dante DiVincenzo with nearly the full mid-level exception, and they're still under that luxury tax number. Uh, so I think that was probably the primary motivation. You wanted to find, I think, a, a good place for Toppin to, to have a chance to get more minutes and to get more playing time, and also you wanted to trade him to a place that could absorb his salary into cap space so you could shed some salary I think that's what they wanted to do with that transaction. And when you look at Obi Toppin's play, obviously there's a lot of high-flying ability in there. I keep reminding Jimmy that he had a East Bay in-game, through the legs, dunk, and I'm like, <laughs> how do you have the guts to do this in a real game? But from a personality standpoint, maybe getting to know him off the floor a little bit, what is Obi like as a person? Great guy. Great guy. And, you know, it was – he started uh, in the COVID season, so it's not like we had a ton of access around him early on, but just getting to know him uh, a little bit over the years, over those next two years, just always a smile on his face, always upbeat, always kind of keeping things loose, um, easy to talk to, easy to joke around with. I think just a good personality to have in your locker room, whether things are going well or going poorly. So, yeah, from that perspective, certainly I think a good addition for the Pacers. And then, you know, on court, we'll see how it plays out. I think if he ends up connecting uh, with Mr. Halliburton on some pretty alley-oops over the course of the season, I think some Knicks fans are going to be hurt and upset when they see those highlights. No, the fans never have anything to say about anything. They have, they're always very measured, especially in New York. You know, you all have to deal with very mild-mannered fans. You clearly didn't watch Luis Severino last night, I can tell you that right I'm just now. thinking about when the, the kid was uh, crying when Kristaps Porzingis got, got picked yeah, that sure. one year. And now, honestly, jokes aside, Kristaps could be the reason Boston wins the championship yeah. next year. So, I mean, it, it, it's always fun when you, when you get New York involved. I'll say that for sure. <laughs> 
Ian, we've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks on how the Eastern Conference looks now compared to where it was at the end of last season and how much movement there are for teams that are either near where the Pacers were or in that middle of the pack area, four to five to six, like the Knicks were. As you look at the way the Knicks are structured right now, what what is most unique about this team? Obviously, Julius Randle is still a part of this mix. That he'll have him under team control uh, until the 25-26 season when he has a player option. They acquired Jalen Brunson last year. You already mentioned Dante DiVincenzo. When you look at this roster, where's the room for growth in New York compared to the rest of the Eastern Conference in this coming year? Yeah, it seems to me that they're betting on internal improvement from their young guys and and also Jalen Brunson, you know, Tom Thibodeau were as good as Jalen Brunson was last year. And he was excellent. He said, listen, I've known him for a long time and every year he seems to find a way to improve. So I think that's, that's certainly part of the thinking here with New York that Brunson is continuing to ascend. And then your young players, your Quentin Grimes's, your RJ Barrett's, your Emmanuel Quickly's, I think those guys are going to continue to take a step forward. I think there was steady progress from them uh, last season. And then so I think that combined with DiVincenzo here, who's going to just give you uh, more grit rebounding, a uh, good cutter on offense, solid defender, and a good shooter last year. Kind of similar to what Josh Hart did in his stint with the Knicks in the regular season, at least. Just more of that. That's something that I think Tom Thibodeau likes, that the Knicks like, is having kind of their ethos here with these Villanova guys. So it's just internal improvement and DiVincenzo kind of adding to what they were already trying to establish, and they're hoping that that ends up in, in more wins in the regular season and maybe a deeper playoff run. What's their multi-year timeline? I mean, I know that Thibs is respected across the NBA, but as you look at highlighting the roster like you just did versus where they want to be in a hungry fan base and in a market like New York, well, what is their multi-year timeline? You know, it's interesting because we've been talking since Leon Rose took over about you know, chasing a star, acquiring a star. And, and Nick, uh, Governor Jim Dolan is on record as saying that that's why he, one of the reasons he brought Leon Rose and his group in here was because of their connections to top players in the league. So still like Jalen Brunson, I think, uh, depending on how you define it, I think he's one of the top point guards in the league. Is he a star? Is he didn't make the all-star game last year? Maybe he does this year. Uh, but nonetheless, I think that, idea is still out there. The Knicks kind of holding onto their chips in hopes of landing a star via trade. And so when you talk about a timeline, Jalen Brunson, he's on a team-friendly contract for another two years, then he's got a team option, a season player option that following season. So I think you have to hit it in those two seasons where Brunson is on that team-friendly deal. I think that's your window to add that top player. And then you see where you are. You're shooting for the stars, and and obviously things have to break right for you, but you're hoping to be a perennial contender at that point. But timeline, I would think it's within these next two seasons while you have Brunson under this team-friendly deal. And to pivot to the other team in the New York area, the Brooklyn Nets that you also cover – what direction are they going in? We know they gave the extension to Cam Johnson, who I believe deserved it. You know that Mike Mikael Bridges also signed an extension last year with Phoenix before he was traded. So they have those two guys locked up. But what does the future look like in Brooklyn, obviously, now that they've sort of emerged from the Kyrie, James Harden, KD era that really wasn't ever what everyone envisioned it to be? 
Yeah, I think that you hear a little shell-shocked after that if you're the Nets. But now I think they've done a pretty good job pivoting in terms of what the return was on the Kyrie Irving trade, uh, getting a couple wings back and a a first-round pick back from Dallas in that deal, and then the Kevin Durant trade, getting a lot back from Phoenix. So I think they're pretty well positioned here having Cam Johnson, having Mikhail Bridges under contract for multiple years, I think it's almost kind of a similar, they're in a similar boat to the Knicks because they're right there in terms of teams that can make strong offers for star players that are out there and maybe requesting a trade. I was, I'm a little bit surprised because I assumed that they would be aggressive with Damian Lillard, but everything that I'd heard as as recently as uh, late last week was that they had kind of felt that Lillard was not on their timeline, so they weren't going to be super aggressive. I think they could get involved as a third team where Tyler Hero gets rerouted to them uh, in some way, shape, or form. But in terms of being aggressive for Lillard, it hadn't been there as of late last week. That surprised me a little bit because I do think ultimately the owner, uh, Josiah, and the whole group, you know, they want to attract eyeballs. They want to uh, – Gain fan, gain fan base locally, and you do that by winning first and foremost, but also attracting star talent. So I think when those next stars become disgruntled, and it always happens in the NBA, if they're on the younger side, I would assume the Nets uh, become interested and, and aggressive in their pursuit of those players. We've talked a lot today here on our show about Tyrese Halliburton taking that leap last year to being an all-star, one of the best players in the league. Could he make another leap next year to being an all-NBA player? When you're in Brooklyn looking at Mikael Bridges and what he was able to do, the jump that he was able to take, what do you think is next for him just considering who he is as a person? Seems like a great guy, but also I don't know if I saw this type of leap from him last year when he left Phoenix. I I was pretty – I want to say I wasn't completely shocked, but I was pleasantly surprised that he was able to be sort of a number one option on offense and not look like it was, you know, too crazy to think about. Yeah, no, he impressed, I think, a lot of people who watched the Nets last year after he came over. Credit the Nets for giving him those opportunities and credit to Bridges for taking advantage of them. I would assume, I don't know what Phoenix, how Phoenix felt about his ability to be a number one or number two option, but clearly he's got the ability to do so, to at least be a number two on a very good team. So I think, you know, I don't, it's, I wouldn't say like sky's the limit because I think the the ceiling on bridges is, is probably below superstar level. And I don't say that with any disrespect, but I think that if, if he can kind of reach his ceiling and become number two scorer and an incredible defender on a winning basketball team, on a team that can compete, that's, that's a very good player that the Brooklyn Nets got. Ian, last question on my end. Ian Begley joins us at SNY TV here on the Fan Midday Show. You mentioned the lack of aggression or motivation by the Nets to go get Damian Lillard, and it makes a lot of sense based on, as you highlighted, where he's at in his career and where that current state of the Nets is. But if they were to get involved in a three-team deal, and I know you mentioned Tyler Hero as a potential piece, but what would be the most to gain from the Nets in a three-team deal? Is it merely salary eating, or is there draft capital that could be valuable to them as they try to figure out what the next iteration of them is going to be? Yeah, my guess would be, because Miami wants to get this thing done, right? Yeah. So my guess would be they would be either gaining uh, some draft capital or they would be unloading maybe some future salary that they wanted to get off their books. I know Ben Simmons is a name that's been thrown out there a lot. 
I'm not sure that he has been, you know, concretely involved in these talks in a significant way. But I think it's got to be something like that. I don't think it would just be Tyler Harrell. I think it would be either some draft compensation or some shedding future salary. And the Nets aren't just going to facilitate the deal uh, just to help Miami out. They'll get Tyler Hero, a very good player, but I think there's got to be a little bit more or for, for Brooklyn to go ahead and do it. Ian, are you out at Summer League or are you still hanging out in New York? I'm home, man. I'm home because Knicks did not have a, a high pick. Nets did not have a high pick. And I don't think any like big, big trade is imminent for either of these two teams. So I, I wanted to take advantage of time at home, spend time with the kids and, and – uh, my, my poor wife who's put up with me for the last three weeks with the draft and free and all that. So Sounds like true love to, to me, man. Sounds like true love. But uh, Yeah, she puts up with a lot. <laughs> but on that note, just real quick, will you be tuning in to Women Yamba tonight, his debut in Summer League? Oh, yeah. That's, that's KMS TV. I mean, I was there in Vegas when Zion debuted against R.J. Barrett in the Knicks, and there was like an earthquake that stopped the game, and that was wild. Yep. This is going to be a great scene, a wild scene. I think everybody is looking forward to seeing what Wembenyama can do. Hopefully he's not hobbled by the Britney Spears incident, and he can go out there and, and give it a go tonight. But it's going to be fun to watch, certainly. Uh, Spurs, you know, future of the league, and, and let's see what he can do. Well, Ian, thanks for your time, man. I'll catch up with you soon and see you down the line. That all sounds good. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Thanks you too, Ian. The NFL is always king, and as we pivot to more NFL-related topics, we have John Glennon on the line. He covers the Titans, another rival of the Colts for um, the Nashville Post and also covers their Predators as well in the NHL. So, John, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty good. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, and we'll start with the quarterback position. What's going on in Nashville how does it look? How do you see it playing out, given that they still have Ryan Tannehill, but they did draft another quarterback, obviously, in Will Levis, who, again, it wasn't a first-round pick, but it was, in my opinion, a pretty significant investment because it still was a second-round pick and at that position. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they've, they've taken swings now in the, in the last couple of drafts at, at kind of that, that quarterback of the future. You know, the year before, it was Malik Willis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, it was uh, it was Will Levis. And, you know, I, I think um, I, I would say that, that Levis had kind of a um, a good, not great offseason, you know, probably typical of a, of a rookie QB, um, you know, had an incredible arm, you know, maybe some, some accuracy, uh, some touch needs to be tuned up a little bit. But I think, you know, as far as the Titans overall, I, I think, you know, Ryan Tannehill right now remains head and shoulders above, you know, either of those guys. 
um, as the clear-cut starter going into the season. You know, the, the downside of Ryan Tannehill, obviously, is in the last year uh, of his deal. He's, he's uh, on the verge of turning 35, and he's coming off ankle surgery. Um, but, you know, still his, um, you know, his, his resume, obviously, his comfort with the, with the coaching staff here, um, and, you know, the, the talent he displayed, you know, despite a, not a ton of personnel around him last year, you know, I, I think still puts him in the, in the driver's seat, no question. John, none of us are going to doubt Mike Vrabel and wouldn't be surprised if he's able to turn these Titans into a team that's making some noise at some point in the back half of the 2023 season. But when you look at all the changes that they've gone through, a couple changes around the coaching staff, new general manager, all the moves that have been made over the last couple of months, and you look at the state of the AFC South, what is the identity of the Titans organization in 2023 because it feels like from afar depending on how chips fall for them they could be a team that, that's stuck in the middle and not like some years where that's good enough to still contend in the AFC South yeah you know I, I guess uh, their identity until proven otherwise it certainly revolves around Derrick Henry and uh, you know even though Derrick Henry is getting up in, in years uh, a bit and perhaps the numbers are sliding just a tiny tiny bit on Derrick Henry you know until the Titans you know show us something different that's uh, that's their you know ground and pound kind of football team score 20 points and hope the defense holds the other team to to 17 kind of a situation I think you know overall picture of the Titans I, I think defensively, it's going to be a pretty solid team. You know, they get Harold Landry back, who missed the entire uh, last season after an ACL. You know, they had a couple of nice uh, additions, uh, free agency-wise, Sean Murphy bunting, Aziz Alshire. I think the defense is going to be pretty solid. It wasn't awful last year. The the real questions for this team and, and you know, what will – dictate whether they contend in the AFC South or not are a number of questions on the offense. And that starts in the offensive line. You've only got one guy coming back as a returning starter. And, by the way, he just got suspended for the first six games of the season in Nicholas Petit-Frere. You've got a lot of questions at wide receiver. Traylon Burks you know, was a first-round pick last year um, and, and flashed some potential, but, but not a lot of experience there. Um, and you've got a new offensive coordinator in Tim Kelly. So I think, you know, if, if the Titans are able to boost their offense, you know, a bit from last year, again, you know, as you referenced, we're, we're still talking about the AFC South here. and You don't have to be a great, great team to contend for a division title and, and make a playoff run. Um, if, if they can boost that offense, you know, they'll, they'll be in the mix. Uh, if not, uh, could be another, uh, another season that, that looked like the end of last year. John, there's been so much discussion about running backs, their value, the contracts. Why do you think Derrick Henry has been the exception sort of to the rule? Because I look at some of these paydays the guys have had, and I don't look at his as ever being an overpay or a bad contract because contrary to usually the trend, he's been able to, like you said, kind of stave off the decline. Like he's been arguably a top five running back in the NFL for the last half decade I would say yeah absolutely you know I I I mentioned there a minute ago that that maybe the the numbers are are a touchdown or excuse me you know a slight bit down I should say from from maybe previous years but still 
that said, you look what he did last year, 349 <laughs> carries for 1,500 yards and 13 touchdowns. That's, you know, unbelievable numbers for, for anybody else. And we're saying, oh, what's what's up with Derrick Henry there? So, you know, I, I think a, a lot of years he has sort of represented a bit of a security blanket um, for this offense. You know, the, over these years, uh, we, we haven't seen great passing attacks from the Tennessee Titans. And I think, you know, some of these offensive coordinators, whether it was Arthur Smith, who's now the head coach in Atlanta, or Todd Downing, you know, who's now with the with the Jets, you know, I, I think they felt very, very comfortable, you know, if the passing game was uh, shaky in the least bit, okay, we can always turn, turn around and hand <laughs> the ball off to Derrick Henry. He's probably not going to let us down. Uh, um, and he's also one of those backs, too, that the longer the game goes on, he gets better because he wears down opponents. And the longer the season goes on, you know, he traditionally gets better in the second half. Same kind of reason because he stays fresh. The defenses are the ones that falter. So I think, uh, you know, the Titans have been aware of that over the years and aware that if you want to get the best Derrick Henry, you have to give him volume, uh, you know, in terms of amounts of carries. Um, and, and really, uh, you know, uh, then you look at last year. Well, all of a sudden, you know, as we mentioned, there's not much of a passing attack there at all with AJ Brown gone. So that's even more reason to turn that uh, turn around and, and put that ball in Derrick Henry's belly. Yeah, I think a Derrick Henry handoff has been a great play ever since he started playing football at every level it's like i just just give it to this guy this big huge guy who looks like a dn who can just um obviously make some things happen that are pretty special but when you talk about what he means to this team how do they try to build around him like for example we've heard a lot of the deandre hopkins chatter for is that something that is realistic or or how do you view that I think it has to be. It better be realistic for the Titans in, in their <laughs> pursuit of DeAndre Hopkins because, you know, you, you look at that wide receiver room, and, and as I kind of touched on earlier, you know, you got Traylon Burks. There's a lot of potential, I think, with Traylon Burks, and, and he looked really good this offseason after sort of an up-and-down rookie year that, you know, was impacted by injuries and conditioning and so forth. I think there's going to be a big jump for Traylon Burks, but – Still, it hasn't been proven for for him yet. Uh, and behind him, you know, you've got another rookie and like a slot guy in, in Kyle Phillips. You've got a you know a, a veteran guy in Chris Moore, a, a Hoosier in, in uh, Nick Westbrook Akina, who uh, you know who's is a good role player, but nothing really special among that group outside of Traylon Burks. And you need someone to to balance out uh, you know coverages in, in terms of what Traylon Burks is going to be. Um, facing, uh, and you just need more targets for for Ryan Tannehill. So I, I think you know it's critical for for the Titans to you know to to do as much of this pursuit of DeAndre Hopkins, potentially land him uh, if possible. You know I, I don't think they like to be put in this position where they're where they're kind of desperate, but they are. Uh, um, you know so they got to be right there and and uh, you know trying to match the Patriots and whoever else comes into play for DeAndre Hopkins. John Glennon of the Nashville Post with us here on the Fan Midday Show. John, go back to Derrick Henry for just a second. We've had the never-ending conversation here in Indianapolis about Jonathan Taylor, what his future is going to hold, what the Colts decide to do with him from a contract standpoint. There's five years separating these two with Henry obviously being 29 when the season begins this year. 
but he'll be on a expiring contract come 2024 and have an opportunity to potentially go elsewhere next season. As you look at him being, I don't want to call him the last of his breed of this dominant high level caliber running back, but the league changes year over year with how much money they're willing to pay that position. What does Derrick Henry's future hold, not just with the Titans, but within his time in the NFL and how much of that is dictated by what this season does for him? Yeah, I think it's going to be a, certainly a huge one for him. You know, he, he does turn the, uh, the the dreaded 40, or excuse me, not 40. That would be a shocker. <laughs> uh, he does turn 30 in, in January, and that, of course, is a scary age for, for running backs. Um, you know, the, the good news, uh, as, as we've talked about, is, you know, kind of each year, maybe in the last two or three, you, you keep thinking uh, that, that Derrick Henry is going to take more of a plunge, that he's going to fall off that, that dreaded cliff. And while his numbers have ticked down a bit, um, you know, we, we haven't seen that, that big fall. And, and, you know, some of the reasons given, you know, uh, as you look back in, in Derrick Henry's first three years, he wasn't used nearly as much as he has been for, say, the last four. You know, he only, his first two seasons, he only started four games. Uh, it wasn't really toward, until towards the end of that third year that he really started to pick up the pace. But he never had more than uh, I think 200 or so carries in those first three years. So maybe in the in the long run that has saved him a little bit. Maybe there's a little bit more tread left on the tires of Derrick Henry uh, because of that. Um, you know, I, I think Derrick Henry certainly would love to stick around at Nashville. Um, you know, following uh, following the coming season, he is he has certainly said as much. Um, that said, the Titans also drafted a uh, pretty good running back in the uh, in the third round in uh, in Tajay Spears. Um, you know, we we don't know for sure whether what how what Tajay Spears' long term outlook is going to be because he's had knee problems uh, in the past. But he's looked at as a guy. You know, one of the first things that Titans general manager Rand Carthen said about Tajay Spears was that this guy is a three-down back. And immediately you started to think, okay, is this, you know, down the road, is, is he the guy that's going to replace Derrick Henry? So it's uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, the cases are so few and far between now of, of running backs getting extended and, and getting uh, big money. It's just hard to imagine, uh, honestly, the Titans, you know, putting a lot of money into, into a 30-year-old running back uh, at that point. That said... You know what what the public is going to say if you uh, if you let Derrick Henry walk away at that point. Uh, so it, it it should be an interesting situation. John, you mentioned him earlier, Nicholas Petit Frere. How big of a loss is it to lose him for those six games to start the season, given the gambling suspension? And then also, what have you been able to glean from the Titans about what they've been teaching their players as far as the gambling rules and and why? This can't happen again, I would assume, because obviously they've had the same sort of problems here in Indianapolis. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I'd say, first of all, it's, it's a, a significant loss because even though Nicholas Petit Frere is only going into his second year, he's kind of penciled in as the only returning starter on the offensive line at the same position as last year. You've got one other guy, Aaron Brewer, is a returning starter, but he's likely to move from left guard to left center. So you're at left tackle, you've got a free agent in there at left guard. 
you've got a rookie in, in the first-round draft pick, Peter Skaronsky, uh, probably, and, and then at right guard, uh, uh, you know, Daniel Brunskill, a free agent signee, too. So there's already a lot of questions, you know, surrounding the Titans' offensive line. So when you take someone who is familiar with the staff, with the system, and so forth, and knock him out for the first six games, you know, that that's going to make life very difficult indeed. And, and to the second part of your question, it, it is interesting to sort of uh, try to get a sense of what Nicholas Petit at Frere and the rest of the Titans knew about gambling because, interestingly enough, in, in an interview before this suspension came down, uh, you know, Nicholas Petit Frere uh, was asked by the Tennessean, you know, a, a, about um, you know, I think some of the other NFL suspensions, uh, and, you know, including the Colts. And uh, he said that, you know, really the NFL and the Titans really hadn't given them the kind of information he would have liked to have seen. Um, you know, that the, there hadn't been enough knowledge, despite the fact that Nicholas petit Frere, who is a pretty bright guy, said he felt like he asked a lot of questions. So, um, you know, on, on one hand, you wonder, okay, are the, are the Titans and the NFL making enough of an effort here? If they weren't, I guarantee you it's going to be stepped up now because I'm sure the NFL wants to nip this kind of thing in the bud right away. On, on the other hand, you know, we haven't seen a ton of these kinds of suspensions. You know, Nicholas petit Frere was, was gambling not NFL-related in the facility. And, and you would assume if, if the Titans and the NFL were completely remiss, in, in providing info on these rules, you know, wouldn't there maybe be more suspensions we're looking at? I, I don't know. So, you know, you, you can you can see both sides of that, but certainly Nicholas petit Frere, as I say, a pretty bright guy, did not feel like he had been properly informed, informed and that was before word of the suspension came down. John, you've been covering sports for a, quite a while. Do you think it's a factor of them growing up in a different era, the athletes I'm referring to, when it comes to the sports betting and just how prevalent it is, because even I'm 27, even five years ago when I was in college, you couldn't bet on games like you do now in all these different states. And so do you think that could be a reason why we've seen an uptick in sort of this sort of behavior? Because I think just personally from now to looking at maybe it is a bit of a transition period, given that you might have been in college a year ago, like, Nicholas, for example, two years ago he was at Ohio State and he could bet on whatever, and then now he goes to the NFL and it's like all oh, the rules are different now. Yeah, I, I think so, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, people from 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 my uh, yesteryear, if you will, you know, I mean, <laughs> gambling was, you know, was as, uh, as, as off-limits as you could possibly imagine for – for anything and and uh, you know that that like many things over the years has has completely changed. Uh, so I'm sure you know yeah if you're if you're Nicholas Petit Frere and you're you're a young guy and you're you know used to playing you know uh, uh, betting on on random things whether you're in college or, or whatever I'm, I'm sure you don't see it as you know what we did in 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 years past as as such a an absolute evil. Uh, you know, and especially in the case, as, as I mentioned, of Nicholas Petit Frere, this was not a case where he was betting, uh, you know, on the Titans right. or on anything NFL related. He was just betting on, you know, other sporting events. Um, and, and so, you know, it's easy to see where an NFL player could go wrong in, in that regard because, he, hey, he'd been doing it, you know, in, in college or whatever, and, and perhaps he hadn't been informed um, you know, as, as well as he needed to be. So, yeah, it's, it's easy to see it go wrong. Um, uh, you know, but on, on the other hand, if, if we're the NFL, I, I can certainly see why you want to absolutely 
nip this kind of thing in the bud because the last thing you want is, is you know, fans or, you know, people watching on TV, anything, anything like that to kind of question, you know, uh, the competitors or the competition. So I'm sure, uh, unfortunately for these guys, the NFL is, is making quite an example uh, out of them. John, for far too long, even when the Titans are a couple years removed from being a one seed and a couple years removed from an appearance in the AFC Championship game, despite all of that, the last couple of seasons and through that stretch, the AFC South has still been viewed as a cesspool of just struggles and ugly football at times. I, I know the Titans have been the 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 top of that mountain <laughs> like and, and I, know, I, know that, I know that none of the fan bases <laughs> like hearing that but it's what it's been and now all of a sudden we have uh, we have Trevor Lawrence looking like he's going to be the next great quarterback and you have this full shift from a front office standpoint of oh man we need to figure out who our quarterbacks are going to be Anthony Richardson's now in the division CJ Stroud's in the division Will Levis has a timeline of being in this division as you look at how quickly things can change in the NFL. What is the what is the ceiling or what's most likely to happen amongst the South as they have multiple faces of the franchise potentially transitioning into new faces over the next two, three years? Yeah, in terms of this coming season, I, I think certainly, as, as odd as it might sound to, to all of us, I, I would certainly say the... Uh, the road to the AFC South title has to go through Jacksonville uh, at, at this point. You <laughs> wow, know, did not I, guess that. I, I pinched I myself too. Don't worry. I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I agree, but you know, gosh, you, you look at you know how, how they sort of had a you know the breakout season last year, and then you add Calvin Ridley. Uh, this year to a team, you know, on offense, it's already got, you know, uh, Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, you know, Travis Etienne, Evan Ingram, and, and of course, Trevor Lawrence, you know, beginning to, to turn into a, to a kind of a star quarterback there. So, I, you know, if they can answer some questions defensively, uh, I, I think they're probably the team to beat this year. Uh, I, I'm interested to watch the Titans this year because let's remember one thing about the Titans is they have had an astronomical amount of injuries the last two years you know in 2021 they set the NFL record for the for the number of players used in a single season I believe it was 91 and then last year they came close to hitting that mark again I think it was 86 or so 86 or 87 last year so if they can have just an average year of injuries I'm kind of curious as, as to what you know whether they can bounce back uh you know it's interesting this team was seven and three the titans were seven and three last year uh just before hitting the skids and and losing their last seven games in a row and and of course you know Tannehill was out four or five of those um so you know i I still think the titans might have a say in in where things go in the division and and i I still think maybe you know with with cj stroud and anthony richardson you know coming in as as uh, i would assume likely starters Right away, you know, I, I still probably think they're growing pains. I would assume for for the um, you know for the Colts and Texans, so we'll see. That's sort of the hierarchy of the uh, of the cesspool, as we will uh, as we will call it in, in my mind at uh, at this point. John, the the last thing I'll ask is because I've been very curious about this since I saw Derrick Henry walking into the stadium there in Tennessee. <laughs> what is it like to stand next to him? It like is is it because I mean I was like oh my gosh he's huge on TV but what is it like to see him in person and does it feel different because I, I in all jokes aside I think that I would put him in that same species of athlete 
as an Anthony Richardson, why I kind of look at Anthony Richardson sometimes, and I'm like, wow, whatever God sprinkled on you, you're just different. I completely agree. He, let me tell you, he gets no smaller in person. I will, uh, <laughs> I, will I will say that. And it's you know it's always uh, fascinating to me you know if if uh, you you know followed Derek Henry on on Instagram or whatever you know he, he the guy loves uh, to work out he's one of those rare birds who you know not only is doing it just because it's good for him but but just can't get enough of it so you know every year especially especially when he when he first comes back you know a training camp or you see him during the off season and it, it's just. You know, muscles on top of muscles, and and you're saying, no way, this guy's a running back. You know, he belongs in the in the you know the edge rusher group, or <laughs> you know the uh, the defensive line group, or or something like that. Um, just uh, such an impressive sight, and uh, I, I agree with you. Just a, a rare rare bird, and and that's why I say, you know, we talked about it earlier. Kind of every every year, you start thinking, oh, okay, you know, maybe this is the year where, where things really start to slow down for a guy with, you know, with a lot of carries and then some years starting to build up. But, boy, that, that off-season regimen and what he looks like and what he does to defenders every year, uh, you know, has, has kept him uh, one of the top backs in the game. i tell you what. Colts fans will be very happy whenever his reign ends, that's for sure. <laughs> um, John, let's get out of here. Thanks so much for your time, and I'll see you down the line. Okay, enjoyed it. Thanks.